If you haven't heard part one of this story, then you should go back and have a listen. If you have, but you think that there was a lot in it, and there was, here's a quick recap. So I'll jump straight into the fire. Uh, you were instrumental in developing the targeted killing yes. thesis. Uh, yeah. can you the, tell Israeli me? the Israeli targeted killing thesis. We have laws of war that, that, that are directed at combatants. They restrict them. Everything, whatever is not written there, is allowed. There's about 15 minutes to reach a decision before they believe uh, this guy is going to be killed on the ground. He said, no, you see, I don't know if I'm allowed to shoot, but you do, right? I said, no. <laughs> but I... <laughs> the, the, the laws of war are a, have a goal or a, are tailored to enable operation of, of armies. Is, 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 is flawed in, 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 in the understanding of what laws are. And I don't decide for you who you kill. I advise you on the risks of any decision you make. And what you're doing right now is you're trying to throw the responsibility on me because you don't know what to do. It doesn't mention, there's no mention of killing in this. Nothing. Who is preventing something? Right, right. A focus prevention or something like this. Exactly. Yeah, right. You know, it's not focus prevention. Right. What is more clean than this? So I want to start with a quote from Charles Dunlap, who was a major general. Uh, he's now retired in the US Air Force. And speaking generally about the role of military lawyers, Dunlap said, Legal advice is being used by the military forces and their commanders to help reinforce in the minds of the combatants that what they're doing is the right thing. This is one of the many psychological factors that needs to be taken into account when commanders are in the complex process of getting other human beings prepared to, frankly, kill other human beings in the name of the state. Now, we're looking a little bit deeper into targeted killings and through the lens of the military lawyer. This time, our context is the second intifada. Intifada just means shake off. And so the second intifada is the second popular uprising against Israeli occupation. Um, and so this is the kind of context against which this takes place. So this kicks off it's actually November 2000. Actually September and, uh, 2000. Israel responds with kind of panic. That basically what the Intifada looks like is Palestinians on the streets rioting, smashing stuff, lots of, um, you know, handmade firebombs and rocks and things and some general, you know, attacks on, um, on Israelis. Later on, it gets a lot more serious. They start uh, redoing lots of suicide bombing and all of this stuff. Uh, and, you know, killing a lot of innocent Israelis uh, on the streets. Uh, later on, there's also rocket fire and stuff. So that's basically the context. Israel decides, OK, we need some new rules. We've got to change it up. This is former Colonel Daniel Reisner. When the second father broke out, it was quite clear that this was something different from anything we had encountered before. Mm. Uh, remember, I'd been around for a long time by then. I'd been doing it for 15 years, OK, right. security stuff. So I achieved... So all through the first intervener as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, including in the, in the field. Um, so I'd seen what uh, public rights and disturbances looked like. Mm. And I'd helped write our rules of engagement to, to encounter those things. Yes. But the problem we now faced was that we were being attacked by use of military hardware, 
Mm. Not stones and rocks and Molotov, even not Molotov cocktails. Right. I mean, it was uh, uh, automatic rifles and machine guns and grenades and mortars and, and, and the surface surface of missiles and one-ton bombs and, and the newly paved roads and right. lots of things like that. Secondly, the people shooting at us were not the disorganized youth, but they were the, actually the Palestinian security organizations and the armed terrorist organizations, all quasi-military, guerrilla-type, yes. militia-type organizations. Right. Third, geographically, uh, this wasn't an isolated incident in one location. It, we were being hit everywhere okay. all the time, in Israel, in the West Bank, in Gaza. Right. So geographically, it was very widespread. The people shooting at us were quasi-military. The weapon was military technology. We, had, we were very well prepared for it because we knew it was happening, because we knew Arafat was planning one. And so we knew Arafat was planning right. one, yeah. Right, right, right. And so, for example, I prepared rules of engagement, new rules of engagement for the army, which would only enter into effect if the chief of staff declared that an armed conflict existed. That we are moving from law enforcement mode to armed conflict mode. And there was actually a triggering event which was a formal decision of the chief of staff. And so we actually formally moved from law enforcement to armed conflict. And it might strike you as weird, it certainly strikes me as weird. You can just start calling something something, and then it is. This is no longer something that we can deal with by law enforcement. This is an armed conflict. Now, we've got to remember that this is my interpretation, right? But anyway, as we know, when there's an armed conflict, well, the rules change a lot. The whole peacetime, you know, arrest them and lock them up, put them in prisoners, which they've been doing, uh, is no longer tenable. We need to, you know, basically start assassinating them. Uh, it sounds bad when we call it assassination, so we'll call it something else. The focus prevention. And so there's a whole bunch of these new rules which we'll go into, but one of them, for example, is that you don't have to be being fired at to pull the trigger on the enemy. You can just do it in certain circumstances, obviously. So there's this radical move from a kind of defensive to an offensive uh, mode of operation. So all these new rules or policies are obviously designed to protect Israeli citizens even if that means assassinating or focused preventing someone. The Israeli public don't know about the rules. The court doesn't have anything to do with approving them or anything like that. It's all... Formalised within the Israeli military, but not known to the Israeli public and not certainly not released internationally, not, not through the court. Let's return to that issue of military lawyers in Israel and the powers that they've got and the way that that has all interacted strategically, legally, politically, culturally. Daniel Reisner, that former colonel that we've heard from a few times, first considered it when in a conversation with a ranking commander. So the commander said... I need to understand something. Am I allowed, if I identify a terrorist leader on the other side, uh, am I allowed to kill him? Publicly, not using clandestine 007 techniques. Right. Can I kill him? And if so, under what conditions? And Rosner's initial reaction, well, I don't know. So he went away. He and his team developed five conditions that have to be met to legally kill someone. But I think this is just law that they're sort of making up. The five conditions were 
And again, I'm summarizing, it's more complicated mm. than that. First of all, you know the theory of the circles of involvement in terrorist organizations? Yeah, roughly. Okay, so in the middle of the circle you have the leaders and commanders, okay? Mm. Then you have the foot soldiers and the actual people who press, pull the Do trigger. It, yeah. Then you have the, we'll call them logistic and uh -huh. other f supporters. Right. The driver, the, the guy who provides ammunition, etc the funders, etc. And the final circle is the people who support the organization politically, okay, mm. or religiously or whatever. And the first condition was you can only kill people in the middle circle or the circle out from that. So essentially the leaders or the people pulling the trigger. Number two, I guess it's kind of about necessity. So we came up with a very strange condition which said, if you can arrest an individual, you must. Number three, essentially a uh, clarification of number two. We will never accept that you do not have a viable arrest opportunity if the target is in an area which Israel controls security-wise. Mm -hmm. Which means in the state of Israel itself or in areas of the West Bank where Israel has security control, we will never allow you to do it. However, if you're in parts of the West Bank controlled by the Palestinian Authority or Gaza or Lebanon or whatever, obviously it's a different issue. Condition four, we said, when you do execute these missions, you must comply with the standard rules of proportionality for law enforcement, for our government. Right. I.e. balancing between the potential military advantage and civilian casualties. And the fifth, every single kill on this list has to be approved by the Prime Minister or the Minister for Defence. And the reason for that was that, in my experience, politicians of that level are very careful what they give their personal approval to with understanding that it could blow up in their face. And finally, Reisner said that the Attorney General approved the five conditions, said, yes, let's make these kind of law, I guess. But Reisner insisted, when making decisions around these five conditions, one of us, a lawyer, has to be in the room. Twenty-second of July, two thousand and two, um, the Israeli Air Force basically fly uh, a, a military operation uh, to drop uh, a bomb on the house of a guy called Saleh Shahade. Um, this guy is a member of the Hamas political organization, which per se isn't certainly not a terrorist organization per se. And despite the media representation of what we might perceive, Hamas is not just a paramilitary organization. They have a social and political wing. Salah Shahade, though, was part of the military bit. By any account, a serious figure in Hamas. He is, you know, the Israelis would call him a bad guy. Uh, most of this, I would say, is alleged because I, I personally haven't seen any proof, uh, though I've no doubt that he was involved in some way, shape or form with fighting actively against the Israelis, whether that was involved in the production of rockets uh, or command and control for, you know, rocket attacks and so on and so forth. So that's who he was, Saleh Shahadeh, uh, you know, a, a key leader in Hamas. Um, and so the Israelis want to take him out. Uh, he's responsible for, for, for these attacks, and so they need to take him out. Basically what they do uh, one night is, you know, they fly this jet over the, over the house where they have intelligence to believe where he's staying. 
Um, the bomb they use is a one-ton bomb, so a thousand kilogram bomb. They drop it straight on this house by an F-16 uh, in in this really residential neighborhood of Gaza City. It occurs to me that Gaza as well has this connotation as essentially, I don't know, like a war zone. That there's the Gaza Strip that is obviously the subject of a lot of conflict, and Gaza City itself. However, Gaza City is home to half a million people. There's a port, there's beaches, you know, it's a city. Um, I mean, a one-time bomb by any accounts, you know, is enormous. Um, You know, even the US military today, when they're in the news each day, will use, you know, a 200-pound bomb or mostly a 400-pound bomb, which still, you know, kills, maims and destroys. So a one-time bomb is, you know, it's enormous. Yeah, it's about the size of my... 2005 station wagon. Now, before we go too far forward and see what happens with this one-ton bomb, let's wind back a little bit. We know that a military lawyer has to be there to assess well whether this targeted killing, this focus prevention ought to take place. Let's hear from Panina Shavit Baruch. She is a former head of the International Law Department with the Israeli Defence Force. So each target has to have well, what targets have to have signatures from lawyers? And they're not necessarily always from you. If it's... No, yeah. It's uh, the pre-planned targets. You have like a bank of targets. So those go, go through legal advice. Uh, advice and right. there's uh, part of the... Uh, you have like a um, kind of um, page for every target. So there's also mm-hmm. a kind of legal uh, part for legal uh, opinion there. So it's part like you have the... You have the, the the photo and you have the uh, uh, all the details, operational details, the uh, location, technical details, and you have a legal opinion. Legal opinion, you know, if it's problematic or not. It's for everyone, for each target. For each target, and uh, if there are conditions that make it that only when they are met, it's legal to to to, to attack it, for example. But only, like proportionality. You know, yes, like only when uh, no civilians, only at night if it's, uh, for example, a um, public building, only in day if it's a okay. civilian dwelling. It would be easy and maybe tempting to think about lawyers in the military as like fingers on triggers from the point of view of, you know, a bit of a cynic. But I don't think that that's really right uh, and fair. I'd like to be able to say how these military lawyers feel themselves. We're hearing from them a bit. And beyond that, I think that they're all humans with opinions and minds of their own. So we can't be too simplistic about it. A former senior lawyer with the US Air Force asked to remain anonymous, but said. Uh, that sometimes I feel more like a chaplain than a lawyer because the questions that commanders are asking us aren't necessarily legal questions. They're looking more for absolution than for legal advice. Now, this is Michael Sfard again. He is that international humanitarian law expert, lawyer, political activist. And he continues with this analysis of all of the angles and points of view on these focused preventions or targeted killings. He says, well, they're really just not targeted. Because at least in the Israeli experience, so many uh, bystanders have been uh, uh, killed and wounded in these uh, missions. So, you know, in, in Hebrew, they call it focused prevention. Yeah. Uh, and and I constantly say it's not focused and it doesn't prevent anything. It, it, 
it just ignites the the violence uh, the violent circle. And you uh, call it assassination. And we call it extrajudicial killings or assassinations. So back into the mind of the military lawyer when this one-ton bomb is poised at killing Salah Shahade. They drop a bomb on this house. Um, they kill Shahad, the, uh, the guy that they want. They also kill his second-in-command um, or his kind of assistant-type guy. Uh, but they also kill his wife, uh, several of his daughters, and then seven members of a family who are living next door. And the UN stats say that 150 other people were injured as a result of the bomb, eight houses destroyed uh, in the area, and 20 other houses damaged. So basically this is a a targeting situation which is going after one person, Shahadeh, possibly two if they knew that this other guy was in the house. So after Shahadeh and his assistant, who's called uh, Zahir Nasser, uh, he's a 37-year-old guy. So they're after ultimately one or two people, but they end up killing 15. Now, this was a pretty well-publicised incident. There was a lot of media covering it at the time. There was also a special investigation uh, established. They didn't report back until nine years after. Gideon Levi, journalist with Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, was there the day after the incident took place. And he says that what Israel says it knew was not quite right. No, and then they came with the lie that they saw that nobody lives there. Yeah. It was just a ruin. So it takes for journalists to go there the next day, which I did. And oh, you did? Yeah, so the next day I was out. there, yeah. Wow. So the next day I was there, the morning after. Wow. And I realized that this was a three floors building. Right. And in Gaza, there is no three floor buildings which is not populated. Right. It doesn't exist. listening to this episode of The Rule Books, then why not subscribe? You'll be one of the first to hear all new episodes and it helps others find this excellent podcast. You might even like to support the hard work that goes into putting this podcast together by heading over to therulebook.xyz and donating your dollars. For as little as $2, you can help to make this excellent thing happen. Head on over now to therulebook.xyz. After that Salah Shahadeh case, but before the investigation was completed or the report came back, the Supreme Court in Israel had a look at the issue of targeted killing. They had a look at it because of a petition that came from a number of different parties. Uh, One of them is someone we've been hearing from, Michael Sfard. A lot of the case before the Supreme Court centred around this issue of uh, categories of people. And so there are two categories of people uh, in conflict in these situations. One is civilians, the other is combatants. And the interesting thing is that they were binary. You are either one or the other. And so in a conflict situation, if you're not a civilian, you are a combatant uh, and the other way around. It's obvious what the um, implication is of being a combatant. Here, though, Israel invented a third category, 
direct participants in hostilities. And so let's remember the whole point of this is to protect civilians in war. This, however, some would say, and Craig says, broadened the definition of the people who you're allowed to target in a conflict. So this is like the heart of the laws of war, which tells us probably that it's really way more complicated than this like 30-second explanation that I've tried to give. Have a little bit more of a read about it if you're interested. Uh, I've linked to some of Craig's writing at the end of the episode. Now, we'll hear from Michael Sfard, one of the lawyers involved in this uh, Israeli high court decision. The court was being asked to determine whether these, uh, this new category of direct participant in hostilities was illegal, was breaking international law. The court said no. So the court dismissed that, and that is, that is important. At the same time, I don't think intentionally, the court has created... And, that, and instead of calling it unlawful combatants, they called it the DPH, yeah. direct participation sure. hostilities. They are civilians, but while they direct partic- directly participate in hostilities, they can be targeted. Now, this is a concept that is, is definitely in international law. Yeah. What made it a status, or something like a status, in my view, is the fact that the court has widened the concept of direct participation, this window of opportunity, when a civilian can be targeted, to, to a size that was never meant. It is clear that um, the direct participation in hostility uh, concept was meant to enable uh, a combatant to target a civilian while the civilian is endangering right. uh, directly uh, the forces. Uh, and uh, and uh, the court has widened it um, to include... Uh, um, civilians um, who are members of a terrorist organization um, and and are not at that moment engaging in battle. It's, it's interesting reading the original petition. This is Daniel Reisner mm. once again. The original petition read as follows. It said Israel has a policy of target of killing identified terrorists. And they plan this in advance. And they uh, it's totally premeditated. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, there is also no, uh, it's not in response to an immediate threat. And, uh, and uh, under Israeli criminal law, that's a crime of murder. Mm. And there is no defense in the Israeli law for that. So I want the court to rule that the chief of staff and the head of the Shabak and all of their teams have committed multiple acts of murder. That's what the petition said. Right. I then responded by saying that we are in a state of armed conflict and the rules of criminal law do not apply in warfare. Because otherwise every single soldier is, is a murderer. And that for that there are war crimes. Mm-hmm. And if you've committed a war crime, then the special criminal law applicable to warfare applies to you. Not regular criminal yeah. law. Yeah, and I said, and now the question is what is the rule in, in the laws of war? The laws of war is targeting intentionally a civilian is a war crime, and absolutely. And then, if you do that, you should be prosecuted for murder. I agree with you. But it's only if you violate the laws of sure. war that then inter- that criminal law jumps in. Right. It doesn't have full applicability. So the question is, if what we're doing is lawful under international law, it can't be a crime. Right. 
So that's a bit of a digression from our story about military lawyers, but it's kind of interesting to take note of because, well, the court in Israel doesn't actually get to see uh, these targeted killings or examine the issue of targeted killings very much at all. That was one relatively unique situation. In 2008 and 2009, uh, Israel ran this operation called Operation Cast Lead. It's known uh, elsewhere in the world and in the media as the Gaza War. The Israeli military were aware that there were Hamas leaders hiding in the Al-Shifa hospital on the Gaza Strip. Penina Shavit Baruch, who we've heard from previously. Everybody knew that. They didn't even try to hide it. I mean, it wasn't like a secret. Um, And uh, according to the laws of armed conflict, if the hospital is used by the enemy to conduct, so if you give them a specific warning and tell them stop using the hospital, Mm -hmm. and then you give us a warning to the and they continue, and then you give a warning to people to leave, you can attack the hospital. Now, of course, there was a Apart from them, there were, of course, uh, sick people and wounded people, including wounded Hamas yeah. people, including wounded civilians, including sick civilians, including doctors, including nurses. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's the reality. Now, I'm just saying, legally speaking, if you give the specific warning, right. and this is a very, I mean, if you would get the headquarters of the Hamas, it would be, of course, huge military advantage. Right. Yes. So even if you knew that you would be killing right. quite a few, quite a large number of civilians, it could still be proportionate. Right. And giving us, uh, if you gave the right uh, uh, warning, it's lawful target. Yeah. But nevertheless, it was never even raised as a possibility to, thing. because we knew that if we were uh, uh, hit a hospital, all the pictures all over the world would be of Israel attacking a hospital. Right. And then the legitimacy will be uh, severely damaged. So here we had a, a target where there was no legal issue I mean, there was a legal issue, but it was it was legal to attack yeah. it if you you know went through a certain procedure. But it couldn't you couldn't attack it because of legitimacy right. issues. I've been talking a lot about military lawyers. Naturally, that's what the story is about. But I haven't really focused on. The military themselves, they've obviously got a pretty big part to play here in targeted killings or focus prevention. Craig is really back onto our 2002 scenario um, concerning Salah Shahadi. It's told to us, especially in the era of drones and precision-guided missiles, which, you know, have this history, you know, precision-guided missiles were used in the first Gulf War. They were televised, you know, the bomb dropping, literally going down a chimney and, and publics would see this bomb be like, oh my God, we have the capability of sending a bomb into a specific building down the chimney, you know, so it's kind of this idea that we can do that every time. Uh, we can get the right intelligence with these precision bombs and just select the bad guys as if it's some, you know, they refer to surg- mm-hmm. surgical warfare. And the metaphor of surgery, when one does surgery, Medically speaking, you go into the, exactly the point where you need, you remove the, for example, cancerous cell and only the cancerous cell. You don't remove the good tissue. Uh, so, you know, as a metaphor, the one of surgery is is highly misleading. Um, it's more like treating, you know, cancer with a form of chemotherapy, which ruins the whole body uh, and not just the tumour. And another recent Israeli offensive um, saw pretty significant numbers of deaths 
of civilians. 1,523 civilians, 519 children uh, out of about 2,192. So, you know, 1,500 out of 2,200, we're talking 70% civilians uh, killed as a result of trying to get those other bad guys. Those are UN statistics that are obviously hard to verify, but even Israeli statistics are not that not not that far away from that. But that just brings me back to the question that I kind of keep asking, whether it's into the microphone or in my head. It's about morality and it's about law. So there are lawyers obviously have this job of advising. Uh, on the black letter of the law, but we've also heard from every one of these military lawyers that as well as that, they take into consideration things like strategy, which I reckon always has to have a human side to it. I kind of hope that. It it seems like um, you could either interpret that this, if we go back to the Israeli military, you could either interpret what they're doing as being really positive because it means that they're not they're avoiding unlawful killings, or really negative because they're going to all of this trouble to make sure that they can kill people. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of seeing it. Yeah, I mean, I, there certainly are two sides or or, or more to the story, and. Um, you know, Israeli spokespeople, Israeli military lawyers, and indeed Israeli civilians like my ex-girlfriend will go to the ends of the earth to explain to us as the unsympathetic international community that we take all these precautions to make sure civilians are not killed. We drop leaflets in Arabic that basically read, your house is about to be destroyed, you should evacuate in the next hour. Um, you know, they do do that. They they develop this slightly more aggressive version of that, which is called the knock on roof, which is where they drop a, a dud missile on someone's house. It's just literally an empty shell. It makes a huge noise and scares the hell out of people inside um, as a way of saying, you know, get out. And then there's this, you know, 15 minute protocol for people to, to leave before the real bombs come. You know, I, is that humanitarian? Do, one, one could see it as such. Uh, in, in its intentions, but not necessarily in its effects. And I think that's an important distinction. Basically, I think as an argument, let's take the same scenario where you warn these civilians. The problem is if the civilians don't leave, now let's be honest, there's all kinds of reasons why we wouldn't want to leave. A, it's our home. And we know that you know if we stay, we might be able to protect our home. B, if it's Gaza in 2014 or Gaza in 2012 or Gaza in 2009, the streets are rubble. There are no streets. One can't navigate. There's no such thing as a map where you can go down the road. Where do you walk to? Where do you go? There's not really any safe places because Israel's also bombing, you know, the convention center that's supposed to be the safe sanctuary. Uh, maybe you're disabled and you can't, you know, get your wheelchair over mountains of rubble. So you stay in your house. And then Israel bombs you and then subsequently, you know, a whole family of 15 die because they've made the decision to stay. You know, the grandmother's too sick, they've got kids, they want, they want to stay in their house. Now what happens from a legal point of view is that, a legal and rhetoric and political point of view is that you say, yeah, well, these, they stayed, they were warned, they didn't leave, and so therefore because they stayed, they must be guilty uh, and, and now you know liable to be killed because they made the choice to stay. So you turn basically innocent people into guilty people uh, and you justify their deaths through this language of 
trying to save their lives, but in doing so, you kill them. One of my favorite questions to my law students is, an alien spaceship lands. Okay, this is one of my earth-shattering questions. <laughs> and these spider-like aliens who have a, 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 have a passion for human flesh, it's a favorite Kit Kat moment, <laughs> uh, 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 come and start fighting us, okay? Right. Do the laws of war apply? There's such <laughs> like that. And I've tried this on everyone. Uh, law professors, and no one knows the answer, of course. I was, my answer is I was trying to think what you'd say. What, new, what would I say? New circumstances. Absolutely not, the answer is. The laws of war are invention of man to govern, right. to find a balance between, on the one hand, the uh, natural inclination to kill one another, and certain rules we've decided to make our it's a tact of humanity. Yeah. However, we have failed to apply it to animals, to flora and fauna. We've applied it to one species out of the six million which inhabit the planet. So how on earth could you even claim it applies to an alien? <laughs> I mean, why? Right. It applies to two-legged homo sapiens, and only to two-legged homo sapiens, because if you're four-legged, we can eat you. The vegetarians might have a hand on you there. The vegetarians are trying to come up with a few new laws. Okay? So if an alien species comes in and we have their lunch, no, I'm not supposed to give them POW status. I can chop them into little pieces and then throw acid on them because there's no rule and they can use nuclear weapons to my heart's content. All I'm saying is that you, do, you need to have a big picture right. look on what we're working on here. Right. We have some rules, some very interesting not, not perfect rules. We're trying to implement as intelligently as possible while maintaining morality and staying alive at the same time. That's all we're doing. It's not biblical text. It's not, uh, right, right. some people lose sight of that. So between the ordinary laws of states, those laws that governments make to govern us, and the laws of war, which are international laws, but I guess all the same laws that humans have made to govern other humans, there's still this sort of issue that stands out, and that's a question that, that Daniel Reisner kind of posed for himself, which was, well, what is the law? What's its purpose? The purpose of law, for me, is, and this is what I was taught, but this is what I believe in, is to make sure that we work according to the rules that we have decided that govern our behaviour. I think law is what we decide are the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a huge value in playing by the rules. It gives people a sense of stability and it allows you to distinguish between right and wrong. Because right is what is allowed and wrong is what is not allowed. Putting aside question of what should be, we're not talking about what is. Okay. That becomes doubly important in warfare. Because in warfare, you do the nastier things on the planet. So being able to distinguish between right and wrong in warfare, for me, is way up there in the list of, to, of the to-do list. Okay. 
you don't disagree that the law is an instrument, but the... I think it's a natural result of the fact that that violence is a society is a societal phenomenon, and, and that has nothing to do with. It's not a result of the law. Right. Actually, the law is a result of the violence. Right. <laughs> That's the point I'm actually. I think it's the other way around. Right. And so that laws are in essence made to make us feel better. About well, the laws are in essence a way to make clear rules of allowed behavior so that we can live in orderly society. I'm going to give the final word to Michael Svard. He talks about, well, military lawyers are being given these powers. We've kind of heard about that over two relatively lengthy parts of a podcast episode. But he says the question, really... It depends how they use that yeah, and 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 if they use it rightly, uh, of course, it, it has a, a secondary effect, which is uh, probably not that good. That the officers themselves are do not um, the, the the moral burden is lifted from them. They transfer it yeah. to the lawyers. By the way, the lawyers transfer it to the courts. This is uh, there's a there's a, there there are two steps here. First, the whole the whole uh, dilemma is being moved to the legal profession, rather than you know every person should have a conscience and should make uh, decisions in, in moral dilemmas. But it is moved to the, to the to the lawyers, and then the lawyers many times say, well, and this is something Reisner sometimes says very uh, eloquently and very uh, candidly. I'm happy that it goes to this because I want the Supreme Court to either tell me you're wrong and I'll not do it again, or uh, legalize or, you know, put a cautious step on my uh, report, my opinion. And then why? Because otherwise it's on my shoulders. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Rule Book. Thanks especially to Craig Jones, who was obviously instrumental in this episode getting put together. He has a website, thewarspace.com, where he's writing about all of this stuff in far more detail, with far more accuracy and uh, far more eloquently than I've been able to do. He's also writing a book. Keep your eye open for that. Both eyes. Trixie Studio.